dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me, I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the blameless you show yourself blameless, to the pure you show yourself pure, but to the devious you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God beside the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets." This is the word of the Lord. Keep your Bibles open there or anywhere around there. And let me lead us together in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and that you speak to us in your word and that you do so by the power of your spirit that is at work in and among us. Please help us, Heavenly Father, to concentrate on this particularly warm Sunday evening that we might tremble at your word and rejoice at what it says And on account of doing so, become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, once upon a time, little Jewish kid Ben would do what a lot of little Jewish kids did, which is go to shul in synagogue on Sunday. It's like Sunday school, but the Jewish version. And like Sunday school, we would sing songs. And a popular number of songs that are sung at shul includes this song that goes, David, David, Melech Yisrael, Chai, Chai, Vachayim which uh, you, you see I've tried to transliterate on the top there of your, um, your outline, but you can probably work out at least two words of what that means. David, David, Israel, Israel. Melech means king. David, king of Israel. Now, if someone's really cool and they know fiddler on the roof and they hear the word lachaim, they might know what that means as well. Does anyone know? To life. Thank you, sister. So chaim is life. And uh, so David, Melech, Israel, chai, life, v'chayam, uh, enduring or endures. So it's basically saying, David, king of Israel, lives and endures. Now that's fascinating if you think about it. David's reign that we've been reading about in this book is like 3,000 years ago. Some guy who reigned 3,000 years ago is a guy for whom even today, uh, 
sort of marks nationalistic and religious pride uh, within Israel. As a matter of fact, the flag for the modern-day nation-state of Israel has a star on it, a six-pointed star. Does anyone know what that star is called? Star of... Isn't that incredible? And you know what? As Christians, we could actually join in with that song. David, king of Israel, lives and endures. And I'll tell you why. Because centuries after the reign of David... Right? During the time of uh, the, the exile, the prophet Ezekiel, this just isn't working, James, you're going to have to do it for me. The prophet Ezekiel uh, uh, spoke God's word and God said, I will place over them, that is in the future, my people Israel in the future, I'll place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. Now, David is long dead. This is centuries afterwards. God says, I'm going to place my shepherd, David, over my people. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant, David, will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, of course, we know, well, I hope we all know, uh, that that David that would shepherd God's people is, of course, Jesus. But why is it the case that David in particular is used as a shorthand for Jesus? Why is it not Moses lives and endures, or Abraham lives and endures? Why is it David, Melech Israel? Well, today we're looking at the last four chapters, I kid you not, of 2 Samuel. This is our last sermon on 2 Samuel, as Fletcher rightly said. And we've seen the rise and the fall and the somewhat inadequate sort of reinstatement of David. And that's actually the end. We finished 2 Samuel last week. These last four chapters, though, are an epilogue or an afterword. They are a big theological reflection on all that we've seen thus far. So it's kind of like we've finished the movie. Now we're going to have a look at the, those extra bits on the DVD that kind of explain stuff, right? What are we supposed to make of all that we've seen of David? Well, well that's what we're going to get in these four chapters. In the grand scheme of things, what are we to take from all that we've seen of uh, this king, David, that was chosen in accordance with God's own heart. And these four chapters, they are, they, they are presented uh, using a literary device, a style of literature. Now, you and I might think that sounds nerdy, but I guarantee it's not all of us are very used to literary devices. As a matter of fact, we just had some. We sang, and there's a difference between a verse and a chorus, and everyone knows those differences, Right? Cool one, haiku. Someone tell me a haiku. How many syllables? Five, seven, five. Haikus are quite good, but sometimes they don't make sense. Refrigerator. That's my all-time favourite haiku, right? <laughs> literary device. Now, this literary device for these last four chapters, uh, it's not a haiku, it's not a song, it's called a chiasm. A chiasm comes from the Greek letter sort of that looks like X, chi, and you and I are kind of used to, when we want to sort of write something or argue something, we kind of start generally and we kind of come to the main point and that's it. But a chiasm kind of goes general to the main point and then back out to the general in the same way that it sort of started. Uh, I'll show you it visually. Uh, next slide. The first and the sixth section of these four chapters basically have the same theme. And then the second and fifth uh, also have the same theme. And the third and fourth, which is kind of like the high point, that's at the centre, which is where that psalm is that I was reading, they also have the same theme. You can see it there. Uh, on, on the outer, it's actually kind of low, right? 
David can't manage God's holy wrath. On the middle one, it's like that David's followers become more like him. And the high point is, of course, the praise of God, the two Psalms in the middle that say that God saves and gives strength, or another way of saying it, he vindicates his anointed. So the way we're going to go through this, next slide, is that I'm going to start from the middle of the chiasm and work out, which actually means you're in for a depressing ride because we start high and it's only going to go downhill from here as we, we get to the end. Anyway, so point one on your outline, in our big theological reflection on what's happening so far, we're looking at these two Psalms that show that God saves and gives strength to his anointed. The theme of those two Psalms in the middle, the first one, the, the, the biggest of those, is that God works his amazing power to save and to vindicate or to give strength to his anointed. Look at the opening verses, I'll come up on the screen. David sings, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my saviour. You get the idea, right? Save, 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 stronghold. From violent people, you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. Really high point of this psalm, God saves, God saves, God saves. A little bit further down, just the next uh, uh, slide, please, James. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. He saves, he's a shield, he's a rescuer, he's a refuge. Save, 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 right? That's what God does for his Messiah. He saves him. And that's kind of helpful for David. You see, an occupational hazard of kings who were in the ancient Near East like David is that people really want to kill you all the time. You ever notice this about the life of David? I mean, it starts with Saul who wants to kill him. And then people want the Philistines, they want to kill him, they want to make war against him. And then his own son Absalom wants to kill him. But at every point of the way, God saves, God saves, God saves. But he doesn't just save, he also strengthens or vindicates God's king. Uh, from verse 25, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful God, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. And again, a little bit further on, next side, verse 38, I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You, God, armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. Not only does God save and rescue his anointed king over and over. But he strengthens him. He gives him victory. That is, he vindicates him. He shows him to be right. He makes him successful. He enables him to triumph over those who try to take him down. And again, that's what we've been seeing. Saul couldn't crush him. The Philistines couldn't crush him. Goliath certainly couldn't crush him. Absalom, much to his heartbrokenness, couldn't take over David. He would be saved and he'll be vindicated. And therefore, it's not surprising that you and I, this side of David and this side of Jesus, uh, see those same sort of things in the life of our King, Jesus himself. Uh, and of course, that doesn't surprise us, David's reign foreshadows Jesus. But if I, I said this this morning, no one yelled out, I don't think it'll happen here. Who can tell me of a time where God saved Jesus? Yeah, 
Yeah, but that was Jesus saving Jesus. I suppose he is God, so yes, God saves Jesus, all right. You get a dollar. Was the resurrection saving? I'll tell you what I'm thinking, you ready? It was when he was quite young. Ah, he's got it. Herod goes, I don't want any rival to my throne, and because I'm a dodgy king and a terrible animal of a human, I want to kill all the kids who are two years and under. What does God do? Hey, Joseph and Mary, I'm giving you a dream that says, get out of here, go to Egypt. And then he does it again on the way back. No, I'm giving you, warning you in a dream to not go this route, to take that route, right? God saved his Christ. But, of course, it turns out that there was one time God did not rescue Jesus. That was a rather significant occasion. It's uh, not surprising that, that that happened because God's lack of rescue of Jesus on the cross uh, was the time that Jesus chose not to be saved by God. He could have. He could have called down legions of angels, but he chose not to be there. The one time where the Jews who were opposed to Jesus had a little bit of sense to their mocking of him was in Mark 15, 32, when they said, let this Messiah, this King of Israel, said tongue-in-cheek, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You see, it would actually be reasonable to expect that if Jesus is the Christ, that, well, God must save him. So if he comes down from the cross, then we'll know this guy's legit, just like David was. Obviously he didn't, ergo he can't be the Christ. Of course, they didn't get that this was the perfect and only sensible exception to the whole pattern. Jesus chose not to, to, to call on God and to be rescued at the cross, and he hung there knowing that he was the, paying the price for their sins as much as he was for all of yours and for mine. But of course, Jesus did and will experience the absolute strengthening or vindicating from God. We've seen a foretaste of it. What a foretaste of deliverance in the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, that's a huge vindication. And of course, we will see it some point very soon when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And that means living rightly under Jesus is only ever always the right course of action. And that holds true even when living rightly under Jesus can be profoundly difficult, which in a room this size, there's always a good chance that there's at least one person for whom living in obedience to Jesus is proving profoundly difficult. The Lord God will vindicate Jesus. As Jesus will be vindicated, so too those for whom living in obedience to him is at this moment a great challenge, will also come to a point where they fall down in thankfulness that they persevered in obedience Christ. On that day when he is ultimately vindicated, there will be people who had kept on fighting to overcome various addictions, be it drugs, be it screens, be it pornography, and those people will be so profoundly thankful that they did that continuous fighting. On that day, there will be those who fought hard to open their hands and to let go of the trappings of this world. And on that day, they'll be so thankful that they didn't give up that fight. They'll be so thankful that they didn't hold on to the things of this world. On that day, there'll be those who have had to overcome envy of their neighbours, having way more stuff because of what we give up, both in terms of time and money, for the ministry of the gospel. On that day, we'll be so thankful 
that we were those who gave of our time and money and who fought against that very real envy that people can feel. On that day of Jesus' final vindication, all of us who overcome, in other words, all of us who actually trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, will be able to echo David's words in verse 25, which will be on the screen, where he said, The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And notice it's cleanness in God's sight, and we do have that righteousness and cleanness. It's not actually our, it doesn't originate with us, but we do have it. We will be rewarded on that day. The first big lesson from this big epilogue on the reign of King David is this. God's Messiah will be saved and vindicated, hence it's always right to side with him rather than against him. We've seen it in the life of David and it's also the lesson for us as the church. The second lesson we learn when we look at the big picture of the life of David is that loyal followers become like him. They become like God's anointed who finds salvation and vindication. Uh, Point two in your outline. At both sides of this part of the chiasm, we hear about David's mighty men. It's a cool read, right? It's it's, kind of like, you know how you go into some schools and in in the office they've got that that big board with all the names of past captains or past principals or whatever yeah it's like that it reads like an honor roll of the guys who are heaps cool who were David's dudes right there's like this central three and then there's a list of 30 and anyway it's worth reading but you noticed in the accounts that all those men one of the things that makes them really cool is they kind of start to sound like David on his good days uh The first account, which begins in chapter 21, halfway through, uh, David nearly dies in battle, right? There's this time where he's getting a bit old, he can't fight as good, he gets exhausted, he almost gets killed. And so his men say to him, Oi, dude, get back there, we're going to fight on your behalf now, we're going to take over in this military campaign. And uh, when they take over, you think, that looks like David, but just on steroids, because there's lots of guys doing what he was doing. Let me give you an example. 2 Samuel 21, verse 19, it says this, In another battle with the Philistines at Gob... Elhanan, son of Jerath, I don't know how you say that, Jerath, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite. Not Goliath from Gath, but the brother of... It doesn't tell you the brother's name, it just tells you this guy, Goliath's name, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. Hey, that sounds like the OG Goliath, doesn't it? In still another battle, which took place at Gath, where the OG Goliath came from, There was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Awesome. 24 in all. Yeah. I hope he played guitar. Uh, (laughs) He also was descended from Rapha, a place notorious for having really grotesque and giantess-like people. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, he is one of the mighty men, son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. Sounds really familiar. They're doing the kind of thing that David was kind of famous for people overcoming super strong foes just like David did once with Goliath now I'm sorry for what's going to follow there's some rather gruesome details but it's important to this point back in the day and I know this not from experience just from learning to actually kill a man with a sword or a spear in that context was really really hard work Um, apparently an occupational hazard is you, you Get through the shield and the armour and the, the, the hand-to-hand combat and you stick something in to, to a person, maybe more than once, to kill them. Often things get stuck in bone and it's very, very difficult to retrieve. 
And so the amount of physical exertion, and that's just physical, think of the emotional state you'd be in if you're going to do this, and you're going to commit to doing this, and you're going to do it over and over again. I can't, I can't fathom that, right? But it's a big deal. And uh, we actually hear of, we get a sense of how big a deal it was amongst these mighty men. In one of the examples, there's this guy named Eleazar, he's on the honour roll, and uh, I love this expression that it gives us about Eleazar when he was doing, uh, you know, the the gruesome work of killing. 23 verse 9, it says, As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Now, I'm not uh, by any stretch uh, a person who's into running, but I know that some people talk about the seizing up when things get really bad of muscles. And this guy had been killing for so long that he couldn't let go. It's really, really full on. Now, why am I making a point of this? Well, I'll tell you, we're told that in the process of becoming more like our King, Jesus, that we battle, thankfully, not against flesh and blood. I'm very glad to say we're not jihadists, right? We don't battle against flesh and blood. But we do battle against and to summarize we battle against the world the sinful nature and the devil and the new testament writers especially paul in ephesians 6 is very happy to use that ancient physical warfare uh, time and time again as a metaphor of our spiritual warfare so i assume that growing in godliness saying no to sin becoming more like our leader jesus that's kind of hard it's supposed to be hard it's not easy to grow in Christian maturity. It, it, it takes effort. It takes determination, kind of like sticking something into some guy and pulling it out again, right? Bad image, but that's the one that's used. So make sure you kind of make those hard calls if you're going to follow him, if you're going to be one of Jesus' mighty men, so to speak. The mighty men, they're like that honour roll in the second part of the chiasm and there's like 33 of them or whatever it is. Um, and there's a reason they're there. We don't know the names, except that we can just read them. Although, cool point, Uriah the Hittite is at the end of one of the lists. Even he was a mighty man. We don't know what they were doing, but they're there in the Bible because they're held up as exemplary. And so, we need to be like that. You'll hear people, or maybe you won't now because you guys, are, a lot of you are younger, but once upon a time it was fairly common, and I can remember it, for people to come and say, you know, Christians, the reason people are into Jesus and that is because they need an emotional crutch. Like they've got some issue and they're sort of weak and so they need something to, to sort of help them. In the... If you ever hear anything like that, you can rest absolutely assured that that person has no idea what they're talking about. To be a follower of Jesus means you... You cannot be cowardly. As a matter of fact, cowards in Revelation 21, they're the first people that burn in hell. The cowardly. Uh, to follow Jesus, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to be determined. Like my favourite quote from Lee and Flower, once upon a time, go hard or go to hell, right? That's what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. Becoming like him should be hard, but it should also be terribly rewarding, and it will be. Just important that you keep that balance. But this epilogue, this theological reflection on the rise, fall and reinstatement of David deliberately leaves us dissatisfied and disappointed with the last part. 
for all the amazing success of David and those who served him, for all God's great work in giving rescue and vindication to his anointed king, a sad note that starts and ends this epilogue, the, the note that actually ends the whole book of, of, of 2 Samuel, is that no matter how willing David may have been, he simply was never able to manage the righteous and the holy wrath of God, point three. The first part of uh, this epilogue is especially painful and tragic. Some of you might have looked at it in growth groups this week. I wrote a little study on it. But we're going to look tonight at the last part. And I'm not going to go through it all because we'll be here forever, but here's the, the Ben Pakula crash course in the last part of this chiasm in uh, 2 Samuel. As a punishment against Israel for what we're not told, but I'm going to assume many of their moral failings, as a punishment against Israel, God allows David to pursue a sinful desire. The word is actually he incited David. He didn't command him, but he incited him. I think theologically we're right to say he allowed him to go nuts in a, in a particular sinful desire. And that desire was to take a census, a big counting of all his military men. And you might ask, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it must be dodgy because God calls it sin later on. Uh, we can guess. It could be a bit of a pride thing I want to see how awesome my sweet big army is and I want to know what the numbers are so I can boast against other people? Maybe. Or I've got a plan to take over more territory, even though God's actually the king and the commander of the army, I'm suddenly taking that. Or it could be, I don't know whether God's making good on his promise that there'll be a time when, when the Israelites number the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So God, are you actually doing your bit? I'm just going to check for you, God, to see whether you've you've actually doing your job or not, right? We don't know, but we know that it's bad. After the census is taken, David is conscience-stricken. He realises he's been a complete wally. And he says, God, what? I'm sorry, what do I do? And God says to him, I want you to choose one of three punishments, David, all of which will be disastrous for Israel. And the first punishment will last three years if he chooses that. The second one will last three months, but it's way more severe. And the third one will last three days, and it seems even more severe still. David cannot choose. He doesn't know what to do. All he can say is, I've just got to throw myself into the hands of God, not of man, because God is merciful and I'll see what happens. And so God chooses, and it's the third one, three days of plague in Israel. But even then, the plague actually ends early. People do die, Israel does suffer, but God actually does show himself to be, as he always said, he would be the God who is rich in mercy. He will not leave the guilty unpunished, but he always tends on the side of mercy. Now, throughout the event, it's clear that David wants to bear the cost of Israel's sin for himself. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, verse 17 it says, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. See, we know that David's not actually right. From the very beginning of that chapter, it says Israel had sinned and God was punishing Israel. But David's saying, make it me, God. Strike me, not them. But of course, 
God doesn't give him that option because David himself is a sinner. It's one of the biggest lessons we've learned throughout the books of one and especially to Samuel. But even then, he still wants to bear the cost in some way. The angel striking down the people as part of the plague uh, stops just outside Jerusalem at the house of this guy whose name is Arona. And David comes to Arona and he says, mate, let me buy your property so I can set up an altar and make offerings to the Lord. Arona says, dude, you're the king, you can have it for free. But then David responds, and I'll put the words up, 24, 24, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burn offerings that cost me nothing. Give me the cost, David's saying. And so he brought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land of the plague on Israel was stopped. Spoiler alert, stopped for a few chapters because you keep reading into the next book, you've got Kings and Chronicles and the same problems arise. David wants to be the one who can manage the wrath of God against his people, but he simply can not. And so to return to the question I began with, does David, the king of Israel, live and endure? Well, in some sense, yes, but ultimately, no. But on his better days, he foreshadowed the king that God would place over not just Israel, but of Australia and everyone, and that includes you. Jesus is the king who knows both God's salvation and vindication. And Jesus' followers are those who, in his kindness battle and yet become like him as they do so and unlike David Jesus was worthy to give his own life in order to turn aside God's righteous wrath against sinners like us. 2 Samuel 21 through 24 is Christian scripture it's written for the church and like all parts of the Old Testament it makes us wise for salvation in Christ it makes us know and love our Lord all the more. Three quick things by way of implication Again, in a room this size, it's always possible there's uh, people here who have not yet truly turned to the king who saves. Now, you think, well, wait a minute, Ben, what you said earlier is that God saves his anointed king. That's true. But I'm going to play a really easy trump card that feels a bit slack, but it's just right. Jesus is God and he is the king who not only was saved by God, but who also saves. And as a matter of fact, there is no salvation outside of him you can face God as you are as a rebel against him and you will not come off the better for it just like those who face David or you can turn and find refuge in him that is you can give up allegiance to yourself or to this world and you can hand over your allegiance to the king that God has chosen to put in charge and who will be vindicated that is Jesus do it before it's too late. Now, in order to do that, you might have to swallow a big lot of pride. I think I did when I became a follower of Jesus at 19. It's a hard to swallow pill to go, you know what? There's no denying this stuff. Look, it's centuries of literature. Like God just makes it so clear that Jesus really is the one he's put in charge over everyone else. You're going to be so stupid to constantly deny that. When you accept it, you have to admit that you were stupid beforehand. That's also really difficult. But one of my favourite sayings, you know what's really good about hitting your head against a wall over and over? is because of how good it feels when you finally stop. Right? So that's what it's like when you come to give up yourself 
give up your life, put your faith in Jesus, swallow the pride, just do it, it's much better. Secondly, I take it this applies to most of us who already have done that, um, we're to imitate and also trust him in the battle, the battle against our sin, the world, flesh and the devil, the battle to become increasingly like him and less like this world. Uh, Jesus set the example, thankfully in a way that you and I will never have to completely imitate, but he trusted his heavenly Father even at the point of dying on the cross for your sin and mine. We'll never be called to do that, but we are called, even in times of deep wonder about what on earth God is doing and why things are as difficult as they are for me currently, we are called to trust and rely on God just as Jesus always did, just as David in his better moments always did. You might be the person in the room tonight who needs to hear that message of keep going and trusting. If you are fighting to remain obedient, if it's very hard for you to remain obedient, I want you to know that you are doing the right thing, you are fighting the right battle. You will be vindicated as he will be. Lastly, given that Jesus alone is the one who can manage the righteous anger and wrath of God, it is always right that we, on account of our many failings, speak not to a priest or not to our heart, but to the one who can take away and has taken away the wrath of God, namely Jesus. He's the manager. It's the one time as a Christian you should really be uh, the proverbial Karen. You should speak to the manager when it comes to your difficulty with sin. I'm delighted that we confessed our sins earlier tonight. That is always right and good for Christians to do. Uh, and speaking of speaking to God, I'm going to conclude our time now in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ in the person and work of your chosen King, David. We thank you that you show that uh, it's your will to save and vindicate your Messiah. And we thank you that you show that those uh, who are loyal become like him and we pray that you'd help us increasingly to become like Jesus, even trusting him when things are very difficult and when things feel against us. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that unlike any other king of Israel, Jesus alone was able to turn aside your holy wrath against our sin, uh, delivering and saving us from that wrath and making us your children both now and into eternity. Uh, Heavenly Father, for all the wrongs that we may have done this week, we thank you that we have a perfect high priest uh, who sympathises with us and who has uh, made us righteous by his blood. Uh, may we continue to turn to him for forgiveness. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.